I'm complicated. It's the best forgotten Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, a podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time professional Sean Connery impersonator, Andrew Phillips. Smashing. (laughs) And as superheroes and mutants continue to do battle on our cinema screens, we're looking back to the superheroes of the past as we tackle Stephen Norrington's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But is this extraordinary failure any good? Find out after the trailer. Their powers are legendary. Their origins are unknown. Their methods are extreme. But when our future is at stake, they'll be the world's last hope. And the game is on. Gentlemen, cast your mind back to the past, to a world on the brink of self-destruction, a destruction orchestrated by one ominous supervillain. But enough about Tom Rothman's time as president of 20th Century Fox. It's time to talk about this Alan Moore adaptation. The year is 2002, and a turbulent production of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has already claimed its star and director, but can a half-decent film be salvaged from the wreckage, or is this ye olde Avengers tale simply extraordinarily awful? Well, we're doing the work so you don't have to. Now, I think I nominated LXG, as I think it's best to call it from yeah, now LXG. on, uh, so I don't have to fall over the word extraordinary anymore. I nominated it for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies because we're currently, right now, in the middle of a whole host of superhero ensemble films from Batman v Superman to Captain America Civil War and X-Men Apocalypse, which I think is coming out at the end of the month. And I thought it'd be good to look at an ensemble film that didn't quite make the grade for one reason or another. And LXG really does fit that little uh, bracket. Yeah, and I think it's also good to compare it to quite a few recent comic book adaptations which are adapted from modern comics rather than ones from quite far back because i didn't actually realize this i thought this comic book property was written in the 80s or the early 90s i didn't realize it was written so close to the actual release of the film yeah it was very much the same as you i I do own the league of extraordinary gentlemen graphic novel Mm. or comic book or whatever you want to call them but i do own it and i did think it was like wrote in the 80s Mm. in fact it actually came out in tandem with the film really Um, Yeah, apparently some of the pre-production overlapped with the comic book release. Apparently they started pre-production before the comic was even released to the public. So there's some of the controversy surrounding that that we'll probably go into a bit later as well. Which is not unheard of because we've seen it with Kick-Ass as well, which was a film and comic book that were released around about the same time. They went into production at the same time, almost like created in tandem. Yeah, and that old classic Hannibal Rising. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. 
I did read the book of that, and it does just read like a script. It's awful. It is a scriptment. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So, Andy, is this your first time doing battle with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Yes. Okay, and what did you think? <laughs> I knew about the film, and I knew about the problems of the film before the film was even released, but I've never seen it. Because I did remember reading the article in Empire Magazine when they were interviewing Jason Fleming yeah. about the making of the film. And there's some quotes that you can even see on IMDb about the tensions on the set. And they were already calling it that it could be potentially a disaster, mm-hmm. even in the article. I'm not sure whether you can actually read the article. It wasn't one of my issues, but I don't know whether I still have that particular copy of Empire. But um, you could tell that things were already starting to go wrong. But then obviously when it did come out and started to get in the bad reviews, and I was like, all oh, right, that's what happened. And I never really watched it. I did yeah. see a couple of clips of it. I think I do remember seeing some of the stuff in the Nautilus. I think again in a hi-fi shop. That's yeah. generally where I saw films that I didn't see back in the day. <laughs> they were generally you always playing in the hi-fi shop as uh, video, audio, visual demonstrations. Yeah, that stuck in my mind because I did remember that the look of the Nautilus was quite distinctive from any other versions of the Nautilus I'd seen up yeah. to that point. And that's about it, really. Well, this is probably my second time with the film. I mm. had seen it before. I think I went to the cinema to go see it when it first came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. I have very little memory. Going into this episode, I had very little memory of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen other than, really, the critical reception surrounding it and just um, how poisonous it was regarded at the time. Mm. I remember not liking it, but there were a couple of elements that stood in my mind, especially the um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde element of the film. That was something that I remembered fondly in a film that was just a nothing for me. It did nothing. And I've since bought the graphic novel or comic book or whatever you want to call it. I've since bought that, but I've not actually read it. So I uh, can't make claim to it being based on a much better source material, although many do tell me that that is very much the case. The source material is Especially volume one as well. I know that volume one is very well regarded, but volume two is apparently quite flawed. Yeah. The actual comic that this film's loosely, I say loosely based on, yeah. is meant to be very good. I was considering buying it because I did like a lot of the elements in this film. Although the film itself doesn't work, I like the premise. Yeah, I have a very similar opinion in that. I do think that some of the elements do actually work and a couple of the story beats, however few the <laughs> story beats it actually has, do work. But I keep thinking, oh, well, maybe it's just a holdover from the much better source material, so I'm told. Mm. Uh, Because the rest of the film is such a mess, really. But I guess before we get into the film itself, it's time for us to really delve into the context. Because we really need to see where a film has come from before we really start to look at what it is. Yes. So what is the history behind the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I'm going to call it LXG from now on. LXG, It is LXG, because that's what it was marketed as at the time. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I think uh, extraordinary was too much of a word for people to really grasp at the time. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's a bit of an awkward title because it does have an awful lot of syllables in it. It does, yeah. Because obviously they might be doing this remake. Are they going to change the title or amend the title slightly? Or? I think it's a good title, to be honest. It's just it is, it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, yeah. yeah. I like the title itself. I think it's a nice name for... A, yeah. um, a like yeah. a superhero group. Mm. So anyway, where do we begin this tale of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? LXG. Where LXG. do we begin this tale of? <laughs> you're gonna LXG? start. Set, you're gonna call I, it by its full name throughout the whole podcast. Every time. Every time. We're set on LXG, but you're just gonna say the League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen. Yeah. 
Yeah. Badly. Every single time. <laughs> the logos are... <laughs> yeah, so there was um, a court case that happened around the same time as the release of the film in 2003. And it was brought forward by two guys called Martin Pohl and Larry Cohen who had apparently created a treatment for a film called Cast of Characters between 1993 and 1996 that had a very similar premise to LXG. And it seemed as if they were claiming that Fox had almost got Alan Moore to create the comic as a smokescreen for taking that idea from Yeah, It's a bit vague, and I'm not sure exactly how plausible it is or whether it's just one of those circumstances. Well, we do want to say, I mean, it does sound vague, it does sound somewhat implausible, and yet this tale does have a twist in it, really, when it comes to the actual conclusion of this court case. Mm. In that 20th Century Fox actually settled out of court. Yeah. So, money has changed hands here. But at the same time, I just can't imagine somebody like Alan Moore doing that as a job for well, a that's, studio that's, that's why the... it sounds so utterly implausible to me and i know yeah. that it's created some anger in alan moore about the whole dealing of mm. this situation because he wasn't included in it in any way whatsoever and didn't get any chance to kind of vindicate himself and mm. take his name off the chopping board i'd imagine that's partly the truth but i would say that the creation of the comic book was probably done in complete isolation and it's probably something that they've found and used as a smokescreen retroactively. Yeah. I don't know what happened to this cast of characters film, but obviously they discovered that Alan Moore was writing this particular comic book series and then decided to option it as a way of doing something similar without having to use whatever work they'd done. Yeah. And that that seems to be why I think the film went into pre-production before the actual comic book series was released. To be honest, I am utterly shocked that it took this long to do this idea in any way whatsoever because i know that comic book films didn't really become a thing until well blade really mm. i mean i know we'd had comic book films before then with like superman and batman but it hadn't actually been its own genre mm. its own separate entity now it dominates blockbuster cinema in comic book form it it made me wonder just how why it had taken this long to take these characters and turn them into their own little superhero group yeah. Because it's such a strong idea, and it's yeah. almost like slapping us in the face. It's too obvious, almost. I think where the controversy comes, though, is the fact that the film itself doesn't resemble the comic book that was created that much, and actually more resembles the premise forecast of characters, because the main thing with the comic book series is that that story offers a very postmodern take on those characters, oh, yeah. whereas the characters presented in the film, for the most part, are the traditional interpretations of those characters. Yeah, because League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is, in fact, quite fantastical as well. Yes. It deals with very kind of, like, obvious superhero themes as well. There's stuff like anti-gravity and and, yeah. and such in it as well, which the film doesn't really get into. It just kind of plays these characters in their own, like, little literary world, really. Mm. It doesn't really venture out beyond that. It just throws them together in a blender. So I think there's partly an element in that, but then there's a couple of other elements that upset the balance, uh, and that's mainly due to studio and star. Those two elements really contribute to muddy the waters and really make this a film that doesn't represent its source material that much. Well, I do think that there is something to say about that, just in regards to how the film doesn't resemble its source material, because Kevin O'Neill actually said that he read the script before it went into production 
and remarked just how little it actually resembled his comic book. He said, I don't know these characters. I don't know this story. This mm. is really nothing to do with what we've wrote. And maybe that is the case. Maybe this is just League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in name only. Yeah. That's what makes me think that this actually is cast of characters and they've called it LXG and optioned that property just so they don't have to pay the people that created the exactly. concept. And, and it means that they get Alan Moore's name yeah. on their products as yeah. well. Because he is a big name in comic mm. books. He's one of the biggest names, in fact. To try and generate more exactly, potential audience. Who knows of these guys that have done cast of characters? Yeah. What would they bring in terms of audience to this picture? Mm. Nothing whatsoever. Let's just call it an Alan Moore film. There we go. We've got a whole new audience. Yeah. There's a couple of reviews of the script online before the film was actually made. Yeah. That even comment on this, like even before like Kevin O'Neill said it, but even just other people saying that they almost flagged it as a failure because it was so vague to the original source material. They used so few elements that actually made the original comic book work and why people liked it. And I've said it before, but this belongs to that set of superhero films or comic book adaptations that were very slight. Yeah. This is another slight adaptation where we don't delve deep into anything. It's all superficial level stuff. Yes, it is, yeah. I actually do think in terms of this film and in terms of setting the landscape at the time of what films were like, it comes out very much on the heels of The Matrix, I think. Just in terms of the way that the film looks. It's very gloomy, very dark. It reminded me of The Matrix somewhat, actually, mm. just in t- aesthetically in a way. In that it's both trying to be dark and also kind of cool. Mm. Well, I can think of another film that was... Um, inspired by the matrix it seems to have inspired this film mm. in some way and i think underworld mm. the um, the werewolf versus vampire movie yeah because that, that's another film that's it both feels modern and old and it's like a mishmash of genres mm. kind of put together i really don't like the underworld films it really bothers me because you've got these fantastic vampire and uh, werewolf characters that when they meet up they shoot each other <laughs> <laughs> what does it matter that they're werewolves or vampires if when yeah. they meet up they're just going to suddenly jump into bullet time yeah. and start shooting at each other? But I, I can see the inspiration of that on LXG as well. Yeah. Like how they've tried to corner that market because it does feel like a very Fox thing to do because the Underworld films are very shallow and not much thought has been put into them, but they're kind of just rolled out there just to capitalize on what's in at the moment and then disappear. And this feels very much like that kind of film, like a Tom Rothman film. Yeah, it reeks of Tom Rothman fucks. Yeah. But continuing to talk about The Matrix, just how did uh, The Matrix tie into uh, Sean Connery then, signing on? Sean Connery had had a string of film offers that he turned down because he didn't get the source material or he didn't understand the script too well. Yeah. And uh, two of these films were The Matrix yes. and The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he was offered the Morpheus character in The Matrix and turned it down, and Gandalf in Lord of the Rings mm. and turned it down. <laughs> Could you imagine him as either? <laughs> it's weird because both of, both of those characters have become so iconic to the people that played them mm. that obviously if Sean Connery would have signed on to either of those films, it would have been made into Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, into a Sean Connery character, but I think that both those characters, they could have worked under Sean Connery doing yeah. that thing, but they work on their own. Yeah, I can only think with The Matrix, if they did The Matrix of the Sean Connery, it would have just ended up being like Ramirez from Highlander 2. 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah. Same with this film, actually. I can probably say for most of the latter-day Sean Connery films, because he's so Sean Connery by this point. Yeah. Like, he got himself into such a position as an actor that when you bring Sean Connery into something, he is Sean Connery. Yeah, I'm thinking with like... a capital S and a capital C. Yeah. Entrapment so, was entrapment, another one. Yeah. Um, even First Night. Something like yes, that. Yes, definitely. Mean, I'd say from probably the mid-90s onwards, when you got Sean Connery in a film, it really dictated how that film was going to go for better or worse. And I think actually in most cases at this point in his career, for worse. You know what Sean Connery needed at this point in his career? Another Zardoz. Yeah. It, it really, but I mean that honestly, not even as a joke. He needed a film in which he could take a risk in. Because it's weird to think that Zardoz was a film that Sean Connery sought out to make as a statement. Yeah. I think he needed that kind of statement film at that point in his career, but I don't think the fire was in, in him anymore. And you can kind of tell with where he went after LXG that it really wasn't in him. He was winding down to a close. Yeah. This is the film that made him realize that uh, maybe this is not what he wanted to do. No, he wants uh, to play golf a lot. Is, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Imagine there'd be like mini golf. There's mini golf just out, out of shot <laughs> yeah. in all these in this film. But yeah, he turned down these roles. So he decided to basically accept the next film that was offered to him that he didn't understand (laughs) just in case it was going to be a hit because obviously seeing how successful Lord of the Rings and The Matrix were at the time, he must have been kicking himself Yeah, going, oh, why didn't I do that film? So he just thought, what's this? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Don't understand a word of it. I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out that that doesn't work every time. (laughs) No. It's one of those films that could work so well, but it's hampered by quite a few things. And again, the casting of Sean Connery is one of the things that actually holds it back. Yeah. Because in doing so, changes the whole balance of the film. Yeah. And also because the amount of money that he was being paid to play this character, everything is geared towards that character and everything else is just there to support that character. It is, and that's something that is also different from the comic book in that yeah. the comic book actually has Mina as the lead of yes. the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Whereas this one, uh, it's more tailored towards Alan Quatermain, who does kind of get lost in the film as it goes on. But yeah, that's we'll the funny thing, that the fact later. that he gets paid so much and they geared the film around him so much that he uh, doesn't actually make as big an impact in the film as you would think. No. But yeah, they changed the character of Mina quite a lot. And I think this is probably for reasons of clarity. They, In the film, they use her name of Mina Harker, whereas in the book, they call her Mina Murray, which is her maiden name. Yeah. The other big thing is that she's not a vampire in the comic book series. Yeah. She's definitely got a scar on her neck, but that's about it. But she's really the brains behind the operation. She's the one that gathers them all together and is the leader of the group. Yeah. And she's uh, completely sidelined. In a really negative way, actually, because <laughs> uh, when I was watching this with Jess as well, she was talking about, oh, yeah, Sean Connery is a real misogynist bastard in this film. And that's a complete about turn to what the original source material is. Yeah. <laughs> it was Sean Connery playing Sean Connery. Yeah. The old shut her up with a slap Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> Three no- <laughs> oh, 50 <laughs> no's on a yes means yes. yes. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely yeah. that Sean Connery. It is that Sean Connery on show. Yeah, with a rather spectacular wig. 
Oh, it is. Yeah, it, I think I thought it was quite good. It's uh, it's definitely a Sean Connery wig. But it's just the fact that you know Sean Connery is bald as a coot by this point. That <laughs> it's just it's a wig. Obviously, you, you so, may yeah. as well just color it purple. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at this point. I mean, who would you cast? Who would be good casting for that role other than Sean Connery? Because I do agree with you. I think once Sean Connery signs on to this film, it becomes a Sean Connery vehicle. Yeah. And that's also what takes away from the ensemble as well. Yeah. Because you want to feel like all these characters are on an even keel. Uh, Much in the same way that they feel in The Avengers. Mm. Uh, It needs to be like that kind of film. But with Sean Connery, it's just a Sean Connery vehicle. Yeah, and and adding him upsets the balance. And that goes down to the the actual casting as well, because they'd spent so much money on attaining Sean Connery. Like, they gave him $17 million to be in this film. And this was a film that only cost $78 million. So it was almost a quarter of their budget. They couldn't afford to get any other well-known names in the film. Like, pretty much every other actor in this film has been in either theatre, very small movies, or sort of B-movies, really. Yeah. There's no other big actors in this film. I'd say probably apart from Richard Roxburgh, I don't think anyone else had been in anything significant at this point. No, but Stuart Townsend had almost been in something. Yes. As, as a Lord of the Rings name. reference there. Yeah. <laughs> He was cast as Aragorn for what amounted to about three weeks of filming or yeah. two weeks of filming and then was uh, forced out, really, and yeah. replaced by Viggo Mortensen. And looking at this film, I'd say probably for the better. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not so much that he's a bad actor or anything because I don't think he's a, a bad actor. He's never really been given a film to shine, really. No. But he is way too young for that character. Definitely. Aragorn. <laughs> Especially because he's essentially he's playing Dorian Gray and LXG, so that should let you into just how young he looks. I mean, he kind of even looks a bit too young for Dorian Gray. Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably just luck on their part that they managed to get Viggo Mortensen, who's perfect yeah. for that role. And again, that's a perfectly cast film. Mm-hmm. And that's when they have the balls to make those decisions, because they could have easily have just gone with it. Yeah. And uh, left it as it was, and it may have been criticised for miscasting that character. But... um they actually stuck to the guns and, and decided to make that choice, which is obviously always going to be tough, but they did it. And uh, <laughs> in a weird way, I, I kind of wish they would have done that with this film, really, because yeah. I think the Connery element is uh, uh, probably the main factor for it not working, in fact, because I think more money could have been spent on the actors, but then I think more money could have been spent on the production as well, as a whole. Definitely, and if there's one thing this film needed, it was money, because yeah. <laughs> there are... a few things especially when we get into the filmmaking that stick out like a sore thumb with the rest of the film but just while we're talking about the acts as well specifically sean connery it's not just the money really that he affected being in this film but there was also a lot of animosity between the director stephen norrington and sean connery during the making of this film i know that stephen norrington himself has gone on to say that he wasn't comfortable directing such a huge crew and that's possibly why he hasn't made a film since and this was the film that forced sean connery into retirement this was the film that made him realize it just wasn't worth it anymore mm. just because that's how bad the working relationship was between Stephen Johnson yeah. and sean connery i know that sean connery actually said at the premiere when Stephen norrington didn't arrive to the premiere and he, sean connery was asked by the press where norrington was and sean connery said have you looked at the local asylum <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean it he also didn't bring like a good working relationship to this film either. I think it could be the point that Sean Connery at this point in his career 
knows better than many directors. <laughs> mm. And Stephen Norrington's very much the young buck here. He'd only had one other big film to his name, which was Blade. I think there's also a large amount of stubbornness on Sean Connery's part as well, where I think he almost realised, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. Because there seemed to be a lot of instances where he wasn't being very cooperative, especially for the amount of money that he was being paid. I think Sean Connery's always been an actor who's been a bit too big for his boots. He's got himself into quite a few sticky situations over the years because of that, because he's very proud and very stubborn about things. He's a Scot. Yeah, he's stereotypical in that respect. Yeah, he's very much like groundskeeper Willie. Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) The Scots and the English don't get on. Scots and the Welsh. Scots and other Scots. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I even remember... Uh, from the interview with Jason Fleming, him describing some of the bust-ups as being like when somebody gets told off at school and your toes are curling in your Clark's shoes. Yeah. And he said like one of the biggest bust-ups was when they were filming the Venice sequences and they were just meant to be walking down a road, Magnificent Seven style, and uh, he wanted a couple more takes. And Sean Connery was like, why do I need a couple more takes? And I was like, you're getting paid $17 million. I'm sure it's, it's not much of an ass to ask you to walk down the to road To walk again. down a road. And obviously uh, he gave a, a not too good reply for that. It just seems like though a lot of the animosity was really stupid. Like, I don't understand why there was so much animosity. Yeah. It just seemed like it's come out of nowhere. Like, no. it's just a clash of personalities more than anything else. Yeah, and there are rumours that it actually grew to such a point that it's reported that Sean Connery had... Stephen Norrington locked out of the editing suite during the post-production on this film. And then there are other people that say, no, Stephen Norrington was actually still editing this film right up until a couple of days before it was released. And then other people saying that Stephen Norrington only got a chance to edit two or three scenes. Mm. And there's all, all these kind of stories as well that all lead back to this animosity. I mean, even there's one story in which it's reported that there was a physical bust-up between mm. Stephen Norrington and Sean Connery, where Sean Connery kicked Stephen Norrington. <laughs> And punched him. So it's like, I wonder if there's actually any truth to that or if it's just something that's been overblown. Because um, I do think that people like to revel in failures like this and Mm. trouble productions that actually the truth does get muddled. And just the severity of what things were. Maybe it was just snide remarks or maybe it was something more. I think the result of both both Sean Connery and Stephen Norrison retiring after this film shows that there was perhaps some severity to it. Yeah, I think it did the film quite a lot of damage already because, again, like articles in the Empire magazine, people had their knives sharpened for this film even before it came out Yeah, because it was known as being a troubled production all the way through. But I think there are other things that were wrong with it because of the Sean Connery-ness to it. And we were saying about maybe him needing to do another Zardos. It looks like he wasn't willing to do that either because yeah, definitely. the amount of changes that he made to the character that he was going to play. Yeah. Because in the original comic book, Quartermain is a recluse. He's not in Africa at this point. He's in Cairo in an opium den and he's addicted to opium. And it's Mina that persuades him to come out of that and join the League. And because of that, Quartermain is not the main element of the league. It's still Mina and Captain Nemo, who are very much the leaders of the group, and Quartermain's kind of like the third wheel. He's the third element in it, but he's not the leader. And um, casting Sean Connery, obviously he's going to be the leader. Yeah. Because of Sean Connery, probably being concerned about his image at this point, 
as being Sean Connery the brand. Yeah. Because he's, he's a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger in that sense, that Sean Connery at this point very much was a brand. You knew exactly what you were going to get when you Definitely. watched a Sean Connery yeah. film at this point in time. And he decided that he didn't want to play a drug addict. So that whole element just fell by the wayside. It's almost like he's tailored it to do as little work as possible and to play it as Sean Connery as yeah. possible. Because like I was saying about Zardoz before, is that is entirely a complete risk it's a ballsy move on his behalf Mm. and it requires him to do a lot of acting not obvious acting it requires him to do something that's not being sean connery yeah whereas this film seems to have just been tailored around being sean connery i really needed to take more risks at this point but just like i said i don't think the fire was in him to do so i think that's partly historical as well though because i think from his point of view all the films where he's taken risks like that especially the ones that he made in the 70s and none of them ever paid off. So Very he true. did Very uh, true. like the Anderson tapes and the Offense yeah. and Zardos. All those films were flops. And when you get films like The Untouchables, Indiana Jones, Hunt for Red October, yeah, The Rock, obviously, obviously as well. The Rock. All those films were massively successful because he was playing Sean Connery. Yes, and even to a lesser extent, Time Bandits. Of course, yeah. Which actually revived his career. Because I was thinking, like, who would you actually cast if you were going to go down the road of making it more of blending in him in- into the ensemble? Because I-, I was trying to think what type of English actor would fit that role of making Alan Quatermain more of a opium addict. To be honest, I think they, they probably would have needed, and I think they probably did need, they would have needed to go younger. I reckon they should have cast someone who was probably in their 50s. Yeah who was still probably physically agile enough because there's so many things in the film that I just don't buy because it's Sean Connery at this stage in his career. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's there's so many like fist fights and things that he does in the film that I'm just laughing at because there's no way that he'd be able to do that. Yeah. Whereas if you got someone who was in their, say, early 50s who's plausibly going to be burnt out if he is like a drug addict but would plausibly be able to maybe possibly win in a fist fight or in a gunfight. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would have just messed with the rest of the cast more if it had been slightly close to the age of the rest of the cast around him. Yeah. Maybe somebody you could age up a little bit. Yeah. Rather than... Yeah. Um... So in that respect, I reckon you could have just found someone who was really good for the role. I don't think you would have needed to go for a... Star. A stunt casting. Yeah. You probably could have got everybody in the ensemble to be reasonably good. Yeah, very much like The Avengers is now. Mm-hmm where you've got people who were, at the time, not massively well-known, but well-known enough to say, oh, right, that guy's playing that character. Because even down to Robert Downey Jr. as well, he was one of those guys Mm -hmm. until he got cast as Iron Man. I was actually thinking maybe somebody that actually fits that bill at that time. I'm thinking just a few years after his last big film. Maybe like, um, maybe a Jeremy Irons yeah, I was, yeah. Th- I was thinking perhaps he was more like towards yeah I think so yeah he was in his 50s around that time mm-hmm. wasn't he I mean you could have even had somebody like uh, Timothy Dalton or somebody like that totally yeah Timothy w- Dalton that would have been a good shout. move like because you still had, you still would have had a James Bond playing Alan Quatermain oh that's um, a great show actually yeah. I really like that I was going to say, if, even if you wanted to downplay the physical attributes of the character and play it more like a drug addict, more like an opiate, you could even get somebody like John Hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and who and is it who purely... mixes right into an ensemble really well. Yeah. But is it purely down to the fact that Sean Connery played Indiana Jones's dad, that they went for Sean Connery for Alan Quartermain? I think so, because... I, there's, no, there's nothing else that would suggest that why would they go down that route? Well, there is... 
a Indiana Jones element to the film, especially towards the final third in mm. which it's about storming a castle in the middle of nowhere and you've got almost like, it almost looks like a crypt, mm. you know, and it very much reminded me some of the shots visually as being Indiana Jones-like because it feels like this place that they're fighting in has some history to it or mm. something like that. It was made for something else. Almost feels fantastical in that way. It seems to me that they're going for that Indiana Jones adventure vibe a couple of times in the film. And just because they've got Sean Connery. It just feels like it's such a massive hindrance for the whole film. That he's it does. just in it. Because it just seems like all the problems... There's definitely problems with the script and the way that the material is adapted. But it feels like it's hindered further by his general involvement. Yeah. Well, let's start talking about the script. Let's start talking about the um, the story and the actors mm. and the characters. Who else is in this film? We've got like actors who are really good, but it's like we've got Sean Connery and these guys. Yeah, and it's it's such an unbalance. It is because not that any of these guys are bad. It's just that they're um, they actually seem more diminished than they actually are because it's Sean Connery there, and because the film treats them as nothing. Yeah, it, it treats them as non-entities because the camera is always wanting to go back to Sean Connery, yeah. and you can see that there's probably in the editing bay they sat there and thinking. How many shots has it been since we had Sean Connery on the yeah. screen? Let's get back, get back to Sean Connery. Yeah. Like, let's get our money's worth. We paid $70 million for yeah. him. <laughs> when, in fact, a lot of the other actors are doing a much better job of playing their characters than yeah. he is. In fact, I'd say one of the best actors that's doing one of the best jobs on the film, and you can't actually see him, and it's... Um it's Tony Curran as the Invisible Man. Yeah, Tony Curran. Yeah. yeah. He was a really good actor. I think that they, think they made some kind of strange choices with his character, though, because he's doing this Mockney accent, which doesn't suit him, because Tony Curran's a Scottish actor. He is. And it just seems... Uh, it seems like it's an American's interpretation of what a Cockney villain should sound like. It is. Or how he should speak. But I think that's less of what the actor's doing and more of what he's been told to do because yeah. we also get that exact thing from Richard Roxborough's character yes. who is M slash the, the Phantom, Phantom slash Moriarty. Moriarty. That is a three-pronged reveal that adds to nothing. <laughs> Especially in the way that he's eventually uh, ousted as well. It's like the most anticlimactic thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got these characters and I'd say apart from... One, and that's not really the actor's fault. Again, it's the way that he's been written. All the other actors are playing their parts really quite well. So you've got Tony Curran as an Invisible Man, not yeah. the Invisible Man because they couldn't get the rights. So he's playing a, a slightly different named character. And you've got Nasir Rudin Shah as Captain Nemo as yep. well. Who I think was really, really good. I really enjoyed the whole Captain Nemo parts of the film, actually. I thought they, they uh, imagined that element really well. I just wish he was given more to do. Yeah. That's my, my thing. with. I, I mean, I feel that about many of the characters in this film. It's like, almost take away some time from Alan Quatermain. The thing Let's give is, these characters something to do. If you were doing this film now, and I don't actually understand why they've not actually done it, yeah. because it would work ridiculously well, why isn't this a cinematic universe in itself? Oh, totally. Because yeah. the way that they've set these characters up and how rich they are... You could easily do a Captain Nemo film or a Jekyll and Hyde film totally. and then have them team up. I'm surprised that... It's like an oldie-worldie Avengers because it basically is an oldie-worldie Avengers. It is, yeah, that's the point uh, of it. But these characters are skimmed over so quickly, you're like... But some of them are done quite well at the same time. You're like, oh, I'd love to see 
a yeah. Captain Nemo film looking like that, and I'd love to see a Jekyll and Hyde film with Jason Fleming playing that version of Jekyll yeah, and Hyde, which is, who's essentially the Hulk. So in this version of the film, now the thing is, somebody out there, somebody at Fox probably is sat on this film, sat on this property, and doing nothing with it. Meanwhile, we've got Avengers films coming out and DC films coming out. There's an opening in the market to do something like this, to do a period piece that is also a superhero cinematic universe. Yeah, because in a way that I, I know Universal are doing their monsters cinema universe but this seems far more appropriate fit absolutely so a cinematic universe than that would be because there's not enough um connections or motivations to bring yeah. those monsters together in one film or a group of films whereas something like this where they basically are oldie worldy superheroes or people with abilities that just makes so much more sense it just seems a lot more interesting yeah, uh, to have all these a lot more of an obvious fit, and also you've got much richer source material because at the end of the day, some of the monster stories are good, some of them are not so good. Whereas with this, you can basically pick and choose what are the best public domain novels yeah. that are suitable for this world. Well, I think we've already seen what can go wrong with the cinematic monster universe that they're doing with Universal, especially when we look at Dracula Untold, which I know went into production before they decided on making mm. a cinematic universe, but it also highlights a problem, which is you're going to have to turn all these villains, these tragic villains, into good guys. And I think we spoke about it on the mm. Wolfman podcast as well. Yeah. is It's just not tailored to that type of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested like when, to when see they where they're going to go with it, but uh, taking away the, the villain element of these characters is not going to work. Yeah, because like, when they join them all together, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. I can imagine it's going to be like Van Helsing or something like that, which is a fucking awful film. It is. It totally is. It's, what's it going to be? Like, the Wolfman and Frankenstein join up against Dracula or something? I mean, that in is fact, Van Helsing. Like, In fact, uh, whilst watching this film, that was another film that sprang to mind. It did with me as and well. And just in the way that I thought that this film was actually being unfairly treated, it's not as bad as its reputation suggests. And in fact, I would say quite wholeheartedly, Van Helsing is a much, much worse film than this is. I do. I do. I, I think, again, I think it's um, that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is based on much stronger foundations in terms of what elements do bleed through from its source material, whereas Van Helsing doesn't take enough. Mm. And, <laughs> well, it just turns into a Stephen Sommers film. Yeah. Going back to some of the rest of the cast, you've got uh, Stuart Townsend playing Dorian Gray. Who is a new addition for this film as well. Yeah, He's not but, actually in LXG, the comic book. But I think works well within the I context d- of the definitely. team. Unlike uh, this other new addition. Yeah, who's uh, Tom Sawyer, played by Shane... I was going to say Shane Ward, but it's Shane uh, West. Shane West, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, who I've not really seen anything. Apparently he was in ER around yeah. the time or something for about 70 episodes or yeah he's mr like american man he <laughs> is and he sticks out like a sore thumb by contractual obligation <laughs> this is truly a tom rothman studio edition really in he which- should have come in and said hi i'm the studio <laughs> note i'm here to connect with the american audience i'm stock american character yeah, but that's his, that's essentially his role. He's just simply there to be someone young, kind of good looking, that's going to capture the American audience. Really. I almost I almost cringe when he introduced himself. It's like, hey, I'm Special Agent Tom Sawyer, <laughs> and it's like, what? Yeah, <laughs> no one else is like this. It's like saying Sergeant Invisible Man or yeah. 
I'm uh, Inspector Jekyll. It's like he seems like unnaturally wedged into every single scene that he is actually in. Because yeah. As a character, he doesn't actually have anything to do. He has nothing to learn. He has no arc really. Is the only th- arc that he has throughout the entire film is that he learns to take his time shooting a gun. Yeah. It's because he's the only character in the piece who's so far removed from his original premise. Yes. Whereas every other character fits in yeah. with the world and what they're doing and their location. He's the only one that's had to be adapted and moved around so much to fit into the film. Yeah. If they were going to do that, I'm sure there's much better American characters that they could have chosen to be that element yeah. other than Tom Sawyer because Tom Sawyer it just doesn't no, just, it, just doesn't fit. And they essentially turn him into a young Alan Quatermain. Yeah. He's not even a Tom Sawyer character by the end of it. He's simply a Americanized, much pussier version of Alan Quatermain, yeah. really. Because he even has the same, I mean, I use the word abilities, because they're all superheroes at the end of the day. He has the same ability as Quatermain, which is that he can fight and shoot a gun. That's all he's bringing. He actually doesn't bring anything to the group that isn't already no. there in no. Alan Quatermain. It probably doesn't help that they cut out the scene which explains why he's there in the first place. Yes, they did, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. With, um, it's Huckleberry Finn, isn't yeah. it? Who is, a, who is his partner. Yeah. is um, Because he works for the Secret Service. Yeah. And his partner's been killed by the Phantom, played by Richard Roxburgh. Spoilers. Not and really. That's all, yeah. <laughs> that's all cut out of the film. Yeah. We've got a couple more characters. There's We've already spoke about Jason Fleming playing Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. There's Richard Roxburgh playing M, a, a three-pronged character. He's, yeah. yeah. And it's a kind of a problem with Richard Roxburgh, especially at this point in time, it's because they have this three-pronged attack of revealing these villains to be all the same. Yeah. Even when his name came up in the credits, I'm like, oh, he's playing the villain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... So his inclusion does... It is around one of my favourite elements of the film, one of the only yeah. parts of the film that I actually think works. And just to set up the film story for a moment, you've got this villain called the Phantom who's been... He seems to be orchestrating the First World War at the turn of the century. He's trying to turn Germany and England against each other by um, creating these terrorist attacks. And there's going to be this meeting in Venice between all the world's leaders, Mm. and it's up to the League to get there and stop the Phantom from doing whatever he's about to do, from whatever destruction he's about to cause. And that's what the film's set up as. And it's this character, M, who is essentially like M from James Bond. Yeah, He gives everybody their mission, and off they go to go and save the day. But once the League's assembled and they get to Venice to stop whatever's about to happen... It's revealed that it was all a ruse. There is something terrible about to happen, but that isn't why he wanted the League to join together. It's because M himself, who is actually the Phantom, revealed as the bad guy, the Phantom, Mm -hmm. he's actually after the League themselves. He's after their powers. And that way he can better rule the world. And that's the story. And I thought, that's a great twist. That's Mm. a great twist that would have done so much more in a better film because I don't (laughs) care about anything surrounding this twist. But the person that got them together is actually only interested in them as characters. Everything else is just set up. (laughs) To talk about this character and Richard Roxburgh, I mean, it's a shame because like you say, once Richard Roxburgh is cast, you can see that he's a bad guy straight from the off. But his character has these three um, reveals First, he's playing M, 
then it's revealed that he's the phantom who's this figure that looks like the phantom of the opera and he's mm. got a scarred face and then it's later revealed that he is not m or the phantom but in fact moriarty <laughs> and each one talked completely different yeah <laughs> i mean i get that the reveal between m and the phantom and it works mm. but then to have the extra element of him being moriarty as well i don't even think it's that it's the fact that they change his character again yeah but but for no reason no it doesn't add anything to it and he starts talking in this really kind of basic americanized cockney accent when he's the phantom he's got like a quasi european german accent like a, a it's real like, kind of he's uh, almost uh, talking like rasputin or something yeah like that. and then when he's playing m and then when he's playing the revealed character of m he's yeah. got a just a an like, oxford english yeah queen's english queen's english accent and then when he's revealed to be moriarty he goes into this cockney thing and i'm just like why did they add the cockney thing <laughs> when has Moriarty ever been portrayed as being a Cockney and it's, um, Mary Poppins style? It's much like how we've complained about with Spectre and with um, Star Trek Into Darkness. It's a reveal that actually means nothing to all of the characters in the film. Nobody cares that it's Moriarty at the end mm. of the day. It's just another reveal that ticks a box on a long list of like, oh, these are the literary characters that we have to include. <laughs> oh, we've ticked that one. There's Sherlock Holmes. And how dare you mention Moriarty and not include Sherlock Holmes in this oh, film yeah. I in mean, any th- way this- whatsoever? There's such there's some really clunky dialogue that's not helped by the accent when he goes, I died at Reichenbach Falls. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> fuck. It's so clunky. Yeah. It doesn't work. Even if well. he'd said it in the accent that he had before, it wouldn't have sounded so bad. But it's the fact that he's saying that in a fucking Dick Van Dyke way. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's it like, is. I died at Mary Poppins. It is totally Mary Poppins, <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. So bad. Uh, <laughs> unnecessary <laughs> didn't even need yeah. to do it didn't even need to do it but oh well he's probably got about five or six lines of dialogue in the accent as well yeah because he's dead about four minutes later he is yeah i mean you actually have a quote from richard roxborough as well don't you about um, yeah. his time working on this film and why he signed on i mean this might explain his performance in a way because he signed onto the film because he really wanted to work with stephen norrington and he really wanted to work with Sean Connery, which I imagine is probably why a lot of people signed on to this film. Yeah. Because why not? And um, he knew from the very first day of filming, his very first day on set, that it was going to be a stinker just because of the relationships that were um, on fire around the set. He just knew that this film wasn't going to work. And uh, that must have been a real shame for him because uh, Richard Roxburgh's one of those people that could have been really big i think i think he could have been no, a really well-known famous actor and he's a bit like um a bit like rufus Sowell when we were talking about um dark city the other week uh he's kind of fallen into that same thing where he could have been a really good leading man yeah but made the wrong choices yeah and just ended up playing stock villains in some really shitty films i mean that's the thing as including well, van helsing including van helsing which again it also hammers home that comparison but that's the thing with these kind of actors as well i i do agree with you i think richard roxborough is much better than he's ever really been given a chance to be in hollywood and i guess this is almost like a cautionary tale in that people do grow up admiring other actors and wanting to work with other people but actually by the time you do it might not be on the right projects mm. and he's richard roxborough has worked with some great people on terrible projects i mean even i think he was even in mission impossible 2 yeah 
He was. Like, he's he totally like was. the secondary villain. He was the henchman, villain. wasn't he? Yeah. He was the, uh, yeah, so he was a secondary villain to do Grey Scott yeah. in, in Mission Impossible 2. And again, he's worked with some great people in that film. Mm. Gone nowhere, done nothing for his career, really. No. So you've got all these people, and you've got uh, Peter Wilson. Peter Wilson as Mina, Mina Harker. Mina Harker, yeah. Who I don't know. I don't know, but I think she's great in this film, actually. Yeah. I thought she was uh, she had a lot of screen presence, especially when she's given the chance to do a little Sean Connery impression. Yeah, which apparently was quite a nerve-wracking experience, because obviously it was one of those things on set, no one was allowed to do Sean no. Connery impressions. But in fact, she did it, and apparently Sean Connery came over to her. I was like, how was that? And he was like, he said, yeah, it was really bad, which is why it was so perfect. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, it was so bad, it was great. <laughs> that rounds up the whole main team, That does, it? yeah. yeah. I mean, talking about the story as well and how the story fails, you've got this whole cast of characters that are in, them, in themselves really quite colourful. Mm. And the first act seems to be about assembling this group of people together and getting this group of people in the same room. But yeah. it does it in such a profoundly dull way Yeah, in that you would think that they would come up with this whole host of really fun ways in which Alan Quatermain manages to come into contact with Captain Nemo, who's at sea somewhere. And then they have to go get Dorian Gray from somewhere. And and all of the characters, slowly but surely over the first half of the film, their roster adds up until together is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But instead, they all just kind of assemble in the one room. It's a series of meetings. It, it is, yeah. Just a series of boardroom meetings. Uh, occasionally... The, broken the, up by the, a few action sequences. Yeah, by a few poorly realised action sequences <laughs> yeah. as well. But it's like, Captain Nemo, for instance, gets the dullest intro of all, which is, he essentially walks out from, uh, through a doorway, and there it is, Captain Nemo's revealed, and introduces himself as Captain Nemo. I always feel with with, the, with some of the reveals on this film, it's a bit like Austin Powers in Goldmember, where the character walks into frame, and it goes, it's Captain Nemo! <laughs> like, in, <laughs> yeah. in big letters. And yeah. then when Tom Sawyer goes, Special Agent Tom Sawyer! Like, yeah. Tom Cruise <laughs> is Tom Sawyer. <laughs> it's like, it's really like that. And then you get the reveal of, like, David Hemmings not being Alan Quatermain. Yeah. And then revealing, Sean Connery is Alan Quatermain. <laughs> In fact, I would say the only one that gets a really exciting and interesting introduction is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. And even that whole segment, I think, is still poorly handled because we cut from London to Paris and it looks like exactly the same set yep. at night. And we're already in the middle of an action scene. It cuts to the middle of the action scene as they're hunting down Mr. Hyde, who's very much like LXG's Hulk character. Yeah, and I think the only reason he's in Paris, one is to get that exile element there, but also yeah. just so they can mention the Rue Morgue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it just cuts to this rooftop chase. And oh God, I wish I was like, God, I wish I was involved in the setup of this chase and this trap so that I could feel anything while I was watching this. Yeah. But this is the only visually exciting League member introduction. It did remind me a little bit of uh, a film we've done already on this podcast, those sequences. It reminded me a little bit of The Wolfman. The Wolfman, the London sequences. Yeah. yeah. Obviously done seven years previously. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but in probably a very similar way. Yeah. Only The Wolfman probably had more money. Yeah. In it. I mean, it definitely did. i definitely say that Jekyll and Hyde is the best realised of all those characters in the film. In fact, I'd go as far to say that I think Jason Fleming's portrayal of that character was actually pretty brilliant. I'd say... And it's a real shame that he doesn't have a, his own film. In a better film, that would be iconic. Yes. Because I think it's great, and I love the way that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde play off each other while he's one or the other. Yeah. I love that... 
Dr. Jekyll sees Mr. Hyde's reflection when and, mm-hmm. and he talks to him. But when Mr. Hyde takes over, he sees Dr. Jekyll and his mm-hmm. reflection and they still talk to each other. Yeah. I love the idea that they're both conscious always at the same time. It's just one is in control and then the other's in control. Yeah. And that's something that, again, I think that's what makes him unique from Hulk, for instance, yeah. who does feel Bruce Banner's consciousness in him and mm. does feel the pull of Bruce Banner but it's never shown so kind of like overtly I like that it's realised more obviously in this version I like the little exchanges that they have that's the only character where they did it in a postmodern way because that's kind of what the comic book's supposed to be that it did make me think oh the Hulk is kind of a, a massive rip off of that of that story and uh, it's basically an American retelling of the Jekyll and Hyde story. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a rip-off. I would go say it's, 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 a, hom- a, homage. it's a homage, yeah. yeah. But it's um, that's definitely where the inspiration But I actually found it worked is. better, because I've always got, had an issue with the Hulk, because you, you have that setup, but where do you take it? And I think filmmakers have had a problem with that setup. Definitely. I think the comic books have realised it in a much yeah. better way, and we're starting to get towards what the Hulk really should be and yeah. what what they can possibly do with the Hulk in film. But he's been vastly underused, and this does use it better. But yeah, I just thought the way they realised uh, Jekyll and Hyde in this film was really good. Yeah, uh, and it was yeah, it's just a shame that he's it's, not featured. It's enough. just a shame it's in this film. Yeah, in this film. Yeah, there's even more parallels because. They even do the abomination. Yeah, they in do. In this film, where yeah. they have another character taking the same serum and becoming an even worse version of the yeah, Hulk okay. slash almost more Mr. grotesque. Hyde. Yeah, they even looked quite similar. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I do quite like the abomination character at the end of this. Actually, in a couple of shots, but I, I have some issues that's more to do with the filmmaking that yeah. we'll talk about later. To talk about the story as well, and while we're on the topic of introductions. I mean, I do like Alan Quatermain's introduction just in that we're introduced to an imposter first and yeah. then Alan Quatermain. I like that little reveal. It doesn't really add anything to it whatsoever. It just leads into a little action set. I, set I piece. do like the fact that they used another 60s icon to introduce the main 60s icon. Yes, they do. Like yeah. The fact they used David Hemmings. Mm. He gets quite high billing for what is a two minute cameo yeah i think he must have about six or seven lines and all yeah and then gets shot pretty quickly afterwards so somewhat underused you would (laughs) say in this film and imagine it's like uh, let's get david hemmings for a day (laughs) i mean this whole setup i always thought this wasn't the way to introduce alan quatermain as a character because we do find out as the story goes on that he does have a backstory and his backstory is that his son died while alan quartermain continues living it's like um everybody he's ever adventured with has perished and yet he's continues on and we i mean we're led to believe that africa won't allow him to die yeah so perhaps he has died before but has been continued to be brought back from the dead and i was thinking that you know what the better way to introduce his character would be to have like an indiana jones type prologue before the main film starts. That would have been more involving where we see his son die. And then we are given a reason for this character to become emotionally invested in the story. And especially into this Tom Sawyer character. Who he sees as is like his second chance to do things right. We're showing him fail in a little prologue. In a little adventure that went wrong. Mm. And then in the rest of the film he's given chance to atone for that. Yeah. Rather than just simply be told it. Because I think the opening of the film as is, where it just opens on the Phantom robbing a bank 
and then blowing up a couple of um, what do you, what do you call them? Zeppelins. Zeppelins. Yeah. It's so uninvolving. I don't yeah. care about any of this. This has no implication on any of the. I, I don't know any of the characters. I don't even know this world. That you it's not up. helped by the fact that all the credits roll over this action sequence. Oh, terribly so! In a yeah. horrible TV movie way. Yeah, it really. I, I, we've talked about this before. How we don't like titles going over the. No. Especially an action sequence as well. Yeah, because where am I supposed to be looking? Am I supposed to be paying attention to who made this film? It's, it's so obvious that it? this action sequence wasn't filmed to have credits over. No, it's been put in later. No, no. It, yeah, because it, it gets in the way of the frame. Yeah. Even that opening as is, there are no stakes. I don't care about any no. of this. There's something needs to happen that makes me invest into the story. And I think if they would have opened with a more personal character beat, that would have set the film off on a better path. And I think you would have been able to do that if you'd cast a slightly younger actor as Alan Quatermain. It would have been yeah. easier to have made him look a bit younger yeah. or, or age him up a little bit more to do that prologue and then yeah. have him slightly older later it on. It needed a cliffhanger opening. Yeah. That's what it needed. It needed the letting go opening of Cliffhanger. Mm. That's what it needed. <laughs> yeah. It's not very often that Cliffhanger is used as a positive example in a, in film comparisons, but very much fits the bill here. I'm not sure I've mentioned this before. I've got a great Cliffhanger story. When I was little, in 1993, they don't do this so much now, but they used to re-release Disney films every now and again theatrically. So you could actually watch them in the cinema. I mean, that before home video, that's what they used to do. But I went to see Bambi at the cinema, age six. Yeah. And uh, one of the situations where they put the wrong film in <laughs> and uh, sat through the adverts thinking, these adverts aren't really for me. No. Thinking, these adverts are a bit yeah. like more adult. Yeah, a lot of people have been killed adults. in these adverts. Yeah. And then it got to the point where opening of Cliffhanger with the, the red helicopter going yeah. over the mountains. And I'm like... And a great Alan Silvestri And I'm thinking... Score. This is not how Bambi starts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so after about five minutes, yeah. including the whole pre-title sequence of Oh, Bambi, that's traumatic for a is, six-year-old yeah. to see as well. And then going there, this definitely isn't Bambi. <laughs> uh, having to go to the uh, concession stand and go, you put the wrong film in. And then, yeah, they changed it and we watched Bambi, but it was just a, a very <laughs> surreal experience. But uh, yeah, going back to <laughs> LXG. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> But yeah, I do think it needed like a cliffhanger opening in which something bad happens to the character that he has to atone for in the rest of the film. Because that seems to be what they're going for with that character, but it just doesn't work because we're not privy to the information. And again, we're dealing with Sean Connery. And it's Sean Connery. He probably doesn't want to do that. Exactly, yeah. Although, to be honest, I think just the way this film's written, who's written it, I don't think they'd be clever enough to come up with a premise like that really i mean the cleverest thing in the whole film is the twist and i'm not even sure that that's from the original source material or not no i'm not quite sure either but um even so it, looks, it feels like a twist where they've got lucky with it because <laughs> everything it else in the film it doesn't it's it, very straightforward it does because i mean the twist only just about works but it's almost like in spite of the rest of the film that the twist works yeah and shortly afterwards it doesn't actually matter anymore there's this whole element as well of there being a spy on board the Nautilus mm. as well. And I think that's dealt with quite poorly because they think it's um, the Invisible Man, obviously, because you would. They realize that things are being stolen and documented on the ship mm. and they're trying to figure out who it could be. And the setup is that it's the Invisible Man, who it is not, in fact. But even that information's like told to us in a very 
dull way. Yeah. Once Dorian Gray is revealed to be the bad guy, we still don't really get any conclusion on the Invisible Man until much later in the film. Yeah, the Invisible Man disappears for quite a huge section of the film. I mean, he does disappear for a huge section yeah, of the film. He he's, is not, the he's not Man. featured at all yeah. for a good 25 <laughs> minutes. Yeah, no, he doesn't whatsoever. I think once Alan Quartermain throws him out of his room, he literally is not in the film until the third act. When he's already at the place in Mongolia. Exactly, yeah. He's already... Which I still can't work out why he, I think it's he in sneak... Mongolia. Yeah, I don't know why it's in, in Mongolia, but he sneaks on board Dorian Gray's craft, doesn't he, when he escapes? Yeah. And I think. But it makes me think, why didn't the Invisible Man hear about... They were all talking about how they think it's him. Why at any point didn't the Invisible Man just say, uh, it's not me? I'm here, guys. It's not me. Why does he just sneak about them this whole time thinking, oh, they think it's me and it's not? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. No. They literally do just disappear him from the scripts and it's like he's not even on the ship anymore. Yeah. And then there's things in the script which I just don't, they just don't make sense. Like the whole Venice section, there's loads of things that don't make sense. I mean, one, how the fuck can the Nautilus navigate those canals? Oh, uh, my wife said the exact same thing, and once they say to their ship... Because they're quite shallow, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's, they're, they're quite shallow. They're twisty and turny as yeah. fuck. This ship almost looks about a mile long, and so I just <laughs> cuts right through Venice. And <laughs> when they say as well that this is as far as we can go, Captain, I almost expected them to cut to a wide shot. And, like, they were only 20 feet inside. <laughs> and there was this whole mile of ship just outside Venice. That everyone can see. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the fact that they're going to counteract the explosion with another explosion. By blowing up another building? I uh, we didn't I didn't get any of that. In fact, <laughs> I remember watching it. I, I was watching it. I said, what is going on here? What are they? Because they basically earth? failed. Because it's already yeah. blown up half the fucking city anyway. So Well, it breaks that cardinal rule when it comes to a ticking time bomb which is hold off as long as you can yeah we as the audience are shown the bomb i mean it's that alfred hitchcock rule isn't it alfred hitchcock always says show the bomb show the timer then put it away and let the scene play out and the audience will always know that there's a ticking time bomb and it can go off any moment Mm. and yet the scene continues to play off we see it in touch of evil which we spoke about in the Spectre commentary. Yeah. Where you're showing a bomb and you know that this car's going to explode at any moment, but just when is it going to explode? In LXG, they show you the bomb and 30 seconds later, they blow it up while none of the characters are anywhere near it or have even started to look for it. (laughs) They just show us a bomb, it explodes. And then there's some kind of action scene where they have to go blow up another part of Venice. To stop other things blowing? I don't know. Fuck. There's no tension. There's no. no payoff. There's no build-up whatsoever. It's just a series of things that happen. It's anti-cinema. I'd say that part of the film's probably the worst section of the it's, whole film. Actually. It's definitely the weakest. And I think also to talk about the filmmaking, I mean, we need to do. We do need to get into the filmmaking side of things as well. But it's also the worst part of the film, just in terms of the look and the CGI. Yeah. Just in terms of the execution, and I think that ties into the fact that seven million dollars worth of set was flooded in prague Mm. and they had to shut down production for two weeks and fox didn't allow them any extra time whatsoever Mm. to allow for this so they just had to continue with the production as is knowing that seven million dollars worth of their sets have been destroyed and i think that's why so much of this sequence is so shoddily green screened Mm. was because their sets had been destroyed and considering the color palette of the rest of the film 
I can see what how they were probably just going to use the sets that had been used previously in the film, like the Paris streets and the uh, the London streets, because it all looks very similar. I can see how they were probably just going to reuse that, mm. and it was just destroyed. Because there is some shocking green screen as well during this whole segment, and the green screen in this film it does vary from for the time great mm. to truly awful like ps2 graphics level awful especially once we go under venice and we see the bombs underwater and the mm. barrels and once the car starts zooming through the streets that just become a indistinguishable gray blur and, and there's some crowd shots as well where the crowd itself has been stretched to fit a certain digital area <laughs> a digital space it's horrible stuff it's definitely signs of a film that's never really been finished yeah completely but never been allowed to finish i mean we can level this at the door of the director and say uh, this is your fault for doing these things in this way but it seems to me that the studio just didn't allow them to do it any other way no but fuck sticks (laughs) (laughs) and i know that we've uh we spoke about the filmmaking throughout this podcast really because uh this one's been more of a conversation rather than a structured (laughs) kind of takedown but there is a scene, one of the action sequences, once the majority of the League has been assembled at Dorian Gray's place. I mean, even that whole setup, when they meet Dorian Gray and the Phantom turns up, mm. we know who that Phantom character is. We know it's M from the scene previously. Yeah. How does M get there before them? How does M arrive at Dorian Gray's place before the League arrive there? Because the League have a car, and this is Victorian England. Nobody else has a car or anything that can travel at such speed. So how does M travel from one location that he was just meeting with them at to Dorian Gray's place before them? I think there's a deleted scene where they stop off at a little chef. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a McDonald's drive through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Captain Nemo wants his fillet of fish. <laughs> yeah, but there is this action sequence that follows and it's uh, once the Phantom reveals himself and the League do fight with the Phantom's henchmen and it's an action sequence. In a set that, that looks purposely designed to have an action sequence. It does, doesn't it? It, it doesn't look like it has like any a stage set. practical attributes whatsoever, really. It's like a, a library, but it has all this other space behind it. Yeah, like perfectly realized for people to hide behind and shoot. And loads of gantries. and <laughs> Yeah. This action scene, it has no rhythm or really any beats. I mean, action sequences are supposed to have beats, really, where it cuts to character a having an action beat with character b which leads into character c having an action beat with character d and mm. that's how it normally takes place and then you, you continue like that and then repeat and that's how these action sequences usually take place in better films so that they feel fluid and everything moves into everything else even if yeah. it's just in terms of matching the action cut with another character having another beat elsewhere in the same environment or even a different environment this one has all the characters in the same place, and all it does is it just keeps on cutting between punches. So we see Nemo punch somebody, and then it cuts to Alan Quatermain kicking somebody, then somebody shooting somebody. Nothing flows into anything. It's yeah. just a series of, of things that happen one after the other after the other, and it actually made me dizzy while I was watching it. I didn't. <laughs> I, I physically felt dizzy. And um, the film does settle down somewhat after this, but I think that's where they truly lost a grip on how these characters work within the same environment because at that point in the film it's supposed to feel a bit choppy we're supposed to be introduced to these characters and their different fighting styles and how they could possibly work together in some ways Mm. and it doesn't feel like that anymore they just feel like people fighting in the same place 
completely unconnected to yeah. each other. If that was the point they were going for, they could have at least <laughs> communicated that through the film itself as well. Mm. But it just doesn't feel like it whatsoever. It just succeeds in making me feel dizzy. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the filmmaking on a whole is rather a mixed bag. The music's okay by Trevor Jones, who mm-hmm. we've covered before on Dark City. The editing's a bit of a mess. It's clear that the film is half a film and plenty of footage has been cut. Uh, but I don't think it's based on the best script anyway. No. But yeah, every now and again, you do get glimpses of a much better film. I, I mean, even talking about that abomination creature, the big red monster that he fights at the end, when we first see him and you see his hand grab around the corner of a rock and he appears, I was like, Jesus, that looks great. But by the end of it, again, he looks like a PS2 villain by the end of that whole fight sequence. I think that Mr. Hyde only works in that sequence because whenever we cut to him on his own, he's clearly a practical creature yeah it's clearly a suit that jason fleming's wearing and it's because it's a nice mixture of the two i mean sometimes the suit does look a little hokey for one reason or the other perhaps the lighting in a shot or whatnot yeah i actually much prefer the suit i mean even some of the transformation sequences are actually quite good i'd say they probably work better than some of the transformation sequences in the wolfman actually like they're a bit more horrific looking i was about to say they're more horrific because they do use practical effects as Mm. well um there's a nice mix of the two and there's some interesting editing going on as well Mm. but they definitely feel more grotesque and that whole segment at the end of the film as well when you do get the big abomination creature that does take place in a set that looks very much like the minds of moria (laughs) it's definitely taking their inspiration from lord of the rings i wish there was actually more of this i wish the film was slightly more fantastical so i would say (laughs) that is league of extraordinary gentlemen and i would say just to end this part of the conversation as well i definitely agree that this is a film that is ripe for a remake i wouldn't say remake actually it's a readaption really this is a film that's ripe for another cinematic go around yeah definitely even the cinematic universe treatment this is a film that's tailor-made for it Mm. i know there are currently rumors as well of it being a more female-centric film which a few people have really um balked at the idea of the league of extraordinary gentlemen being a more female-centric but i think that's actually based on this film rather than the source material because it's in fact mina that's the lead character that we spoke about earlier Mm, yeah in the source material i think that's just what they're getting at that it's simply going to be they're not talking about gender hijacking like the invisible man to be the invisible woman or something like that i think this is how it's written i think it's just saying that the lead of this film is going to be the female character as in the comic books yes we're going to be a lot more faithful to what worked in the original comic books yeah i'd be up for that yeah i'm totally ready for that i think what would also be good as well if if they stuck to the visual palette of the comic books as well because the the way the comic looks is very visually striking yeah like the colors there's a lot more color Uh, and yeah because the problem with this film is so drab yeah it's a lot of brown and blue yeah it's brown and blue and black and white yes it and, is uh, yeah. not much else in between uh, in fact i'd say the scenes that stick out the most to me like they don't feel part of the film are the sequences in africa and the sequences when they're on top of the nautilus obviously probably in malta yeah i know they filmed in malta they feel too bright yeah compared because to the rest of the film they are the film's only daytime shots as well yeah. which probably amount to about six scenes mm. <laughs> Of actual daytime. Yeah. This is a film that's enough to give someone scurvy watching it. Because that's how little daylight there is in it. Yeah. (laughs) You walk away with rickets. 
Actually, I'll tell you one thing I did like that I thought was done really well that did remind me quite a lot of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the death of Dorian Gray. Yeah. I thought that oh, was done really well, actually. It's a real Indiana Jones death. It was death. quite horrific. Yeah. <laughs> I thought so as well. Uh, even my wife said at the time, wow, you're doing Indiana Jones death. Yeah. It's a, it does work as well. That character definitely, considering he's not in the book, he, I think he feels a part of that world as well. I think they do enough with that character. More so than Tom Sawyer, anyway. I just find that whole Tom Sawyer character climax and also the death of Moriarty just rather funny because it just reminded me of that scene in Hot Fuzz where he knocks the guy running out with the uh, the spray can. <laughs> it's like, he's running, he's running, he's running. Bam, he's done. It's like, it just it was so funny. <laughs> I always thought as well, why not just shoot quickly? And then you've got time to reload because he's got a, like a fucking mile nope, to run. No, you've got to do it as Sean Connery says. <laughs> you got to wait until the last possible moment. Yeah. I also find it funny that um, obviously this is Sean Connery's last on-screen film role and it ends up with him being resurrected potentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did resurrect Sean Connery for the classic film that is Sir Bill. Sir the, Billy, yeah. Sir Billy, the Scottish Fuck. animated film that I think... <laughs> Got one stars all around. <laughs> oh, God, it looks like a... The animation looks like a combination of Food Fight and Hoodwinked. It does. It does. It's definitely... It's the new Maybe food even fight. worse than both of those. Yeah. No, it looks It looks like Hoodwinked 3 that didn't even make it to DVD or Blu-ray and just went straight oh, to TV. I remember it had such huge publicity as well because it was a film entirely made in Scotland. And, uh, I mean, even Alex Salmon went to the premiere... And it was like, it seems like, oh, this is what Scots can do. It's like, <laughs> and then it's like, it's an absolute bullshit film. And it was like, and then basically it's been brushed under the carpet ever it since. Really has. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> well, Sir Billy, I think, is a good point to end yeah. our conversation of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen on. We've certainly talked about this film more than enough. Yeah. So now it's that time of the podcast where we try to figure out just why this film has been forgotten. Was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen a giant flop? Did critics and audiences hate it? It's time to move on to the stats and facts. Mm -hmm. First up, here are the critics. So, the Rotten Tomatoes score for this film is a not-too-shocking 17%. <gasps> yeah, uh, with an average rating of 4 out of 10. And that's after 178 counted reviews. So, it's uh, definitely got a fair go there. Mm -hmm. And the critic consensus is just ordinary. LXG is a great premise ruined by poor execution. And the audience score is 44% liked it, with an average rating of 3 out of 5, which mm. I'd say is on the high side. I mean, I, I agree with most of that in terms of the critic consensus, especially. Yeah, and the 4 out of 10. Yeah, and the, the 4 out of 10 is absolutely on the money. Mm. Roger Ebert was not so favourable when it came to this film. He rated it 1 out of 4. And he says, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen assembles a splendid team of heroes to battle a plan for world domination. And then, just when it seems about to become a real corker of an adventure movie, plunges into incomprehensible action, idiotic dialogue, inexplicable motivations, causes without effects, effects without causes, and general <laughs> lunacy. What a mess. He's bang on the money. Mm -hmm. He's bang on the money. There is something truly great about this premise that the film just doesn't capitalize on. But I would say it's um, it's probably a little bit more fun and fits and starts than um, he's letting on there. Yeah, yeah. And it does have a, a genuinely good twist in the middle. Yeah, it has a great midpoint twist. Yeah. And Empire 
were slightly more favourable with two out of five, and this is a Danny Graydon review, and he says, of all the comic book properties eagerly purchased by studios following X-Men, Alan Moore's highly acclaimed melding of Victorian adventure fiction and superheroics was undoubtedly the most exciting. Teeming with inspired wit and invention, only a supreme effort could screw it up. Prepare for the extraordinary, screamed the presumptuous trailer. You should indeed, albeit crushingly, an extraordinary display of creative cowardice and mishandling. I think the thing I take away from that is creative cowardice. Mm. Because that is what they try to do with this film. They make it so safe, there's nowhere to go with it. I'd definitely say that in a storytelling way. I'd say some of the visuals are not safe. Like I said, I really did love the look of the Nautilus. I don't think anyone's actually realized it like that before. Mm -hmm. I actually love... All of the sets aboard the Nautilus, they look great. Okay, so that's the critics' consensus when it comes to this film. Let's move on to the box office. Just how did this film fare? Um, Well, this is uh, the surprising thing, I think, about this film. Yeah, the box office certainly surprised me as well. Because it ain't bad. No, it's not. So, the production budget of this film was $78 Yeah, bear in mind, a quarter of that's going to Sean Connery. Yeah, which is... um, 61 million if you remove Sean Connery from the film. <laughs> even at the it's time, a cheap film it's from not the time, that big yeah. a budget. No, you'd expect the film like this to be made even at the time for 110 100 million, million yeah. 120 million, but not 78 million. And again, considering the, the amount of money spent on Sean Connery, which at the time would have been considerable amount of money mm-hmm. for an actor for a role like that, they don't have much to play with. No, really don't. And I uh, imagine everyone else did the film for about $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> But it made, and in contrast to quite a lot of other films that we've reviewed on this podcast series, it pretty much made almost its production budget just in domestic. So it made $66.5 million domestically, and then foreign, it made almost $113 million for a grand sum of $179 million, so almost $180 million. So I guess I mean because that's that, that's not a shit the bed sum that's relatively respectable. That, that's a modest success. Yeah, for a film that has done so terribly as this, when critics mm. that actually the only reason they probably haven't made a sequel is because of the poor reception. Mm. Because uh, I know that all of the actors, including Sean Connery, were signed on for three picture deals. So this was intended to be a big franchise film. I can only think that the only reason they didn't make it was because of just how poorly it did with the critics. I think a combination of that and also maybe the fact that if Sean Connery decided to retire yeah. after this film and if he didn't want to be in another film, that may have scuppered any plans for a sequel because the actors around him weren't well known enough to carry a film of this budget Yeah, because it was so well known because they didn't have any money to spend at all on anybody else famous. Because of Sean Connery costing so much. In a weird way, Sean Connery also scuppered a sequel for this film because I think because he didn't want to do it. And also because he didn't want to do it, they probably wouldn't have made it anyway. Yeah, I imagine they probably even put an offer in or something like that. Because I'm like, sometimes you get people playing very much in the media these like power play negotiations for sequels where Mm. they say, oh no, I'm not making another film, I'm not coming back. And then Mm. suddenly three years later, they're doing it. Yeah. Whereas Sean Connery has literally retired. He's fucked off. He's not doing another one ever again yeah he's going to golf world yeah so he's going to golf world in the sky yeah not donald trump's golf world though <laughs> no. uh, jesus and even when you look at what it opened up against as well it, it didn't do that bad 
it opened to number two. Yes. Its open weekend was uh, 23 million, and that's just behind Pirates of the Caribbean 1. Wow, so yeah. First, so, the yeah. Black Pearl, which made $46.5 million in its first week. So they oh. came out on the same opening week, which probably wouldn't have helped either, because no. you've got two no, no. big adventure films and kind of old-school adventure films yeah. coming out in the same weekend. Both competing for the same mm. audience. I think that was a real mistake. They should have left it another two weeks Definitely. or at least three weeks or something like that. And then behind it, you've got Terminator 3. That classic. Yeah. That made $19.5 million on its second week. That's a plunge. How, um, how much did it plunge? 55.8% drop yeah, off. That's a, that's a plunge. Yeah. That's not surprising though, is it? Really? No, it isn't. Legally Blonde 2. Red, White and Blonde. Nice. Uh, that made $12 million on its second week. Finding Nemo made $8.5 million on its seventh week. We've got some more classics here. I reckon some more films we could do on this uh, podcast, actually. Oh, this, the, we've got to Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, <laughs> which made uh, $7 million on its third week. Jesus, yeah, I remember that um, out. We've got Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, the DreamWorks traditional animated film. That It bombed terribly, yep, didn't it? it did, which, I don't think it actually got a release over here. It did, uh, but it, just, it oh, made it, about £3. It bombed that uh, hard. Yeah, that made $4 million in its second week. That's how bad that was. And that was only a 37% drop-off, so it didn't even make that much money in its no, first that's... week. That was really bad. Uh, we got 28 Days Later, which made $4 million in its third week. That's like an $8 million budget or yeah. something like that. We've got Hulk, which made $3.5 million in its fourth week. That's another film for us to do at some and point. And that's quite a big drop-off as well. And then we've got the remake of The Italian Job. <laughs> I forgot that that film even existed. Yeah, that's such a... That's a, another film in the long line of forgettable remakes. Yeah. Uh, that was in its seventh week. Yeah. That made... That pains me, actually. It was in its seventh week, and it still made almost $3 million. Yeah, I remember for a long time, they were trying to get a sequel off the ground. Mm. And it did just come together for one reason or another, because David Twohey was actually writing the sequel, I think. Do we know what the drop-off was? I imagine it would be quite considerable. I imagine it would have been, but at the same time... The film made $23 million in its opening week, and it still went on domestically to do 66 So yeah. it's almost three times its opening weekend, which is okay for a film yeah. to do. That's what, that's what you want. I'd say it'll probably be a combination of people's enthusiasm mixed with Sean Connery retiring, yeah. I think, that scuppered any the sequel The last hurrah. Because there are a couple of Easter eggs that allude to the sequel in the first film. Like, there's um, The Resurrection scene yeah. which is right at the end but then there's also a poster saying about a ru- volcano, volcanoes on Mars because that is the premise of the volume 2 and next story. to it there's a poster for Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill the idea was that they were going to be fighting the tripods in the next film yeah as the basically taking the war of the world story yeah. and that's the main story of the of the uh, the sequel that would have been interesting which isn't meant to be as good as the original one I know it's not meant to be it's not as um highly acclaimed as the yeah volume one story but uh, even so i think it would have been quite interesting because it's completely different yeah definitely yeah um, and definitely would have took it more into the realm of superheroes yeah i mean that's where i think because you can mine so many classic stories and not even just characters but classic story elements yeah you've got so much rich material to make and you can really make a, a quite a strong franchise and it's also a good way of reintroducing classic stories to newer generations yeah 
as well because you get a lot of these things where they try and adapt things but they're always usually in isolation so to put them in a way that younger audiences can relate to them yeah like there are a lot of younger audiences are used to these series and franchise and cinematic universe style things now that to make something out of this classic material would make a lot of sense i mean some people may cry havoc if they hear me saying that but on a even just on a basic business sense it would yeah. make it might work yeah you yeah know i mean god i sound awful like you're <laughs> saying that but but i think it would actually you've changed man <laughs> but i think even on a, i mean i'm not a massive fan of those kind of things but i think this is something that would work in that yeah, yeah. in that format okay and all that's left for me to ask is the two questions that i ask at the end of every single episode and first one is are you any closer to understanding why LXG has been forgotten? Uh, yeah, because it's a great idea, executed poorly for the most part. It's weighed down by Sean Connery. Just wasn't done well. <laughs> I think no. that's the reason why. It just wasn't done well. I mean, I hearken back to that Empire review, and the word that I come back to is cowardice, and I think it's cowardice just in terms of where they went with this story and with this script straight from the source material they mm. could have the source material is so strong by the looks of it and the idea is so strong that it should be a instant home run mm. but they've played it so safe and took too many steps backwards that it just ends up being this uh, cowardly inept thing that is nothing to no one mm. and i think that that's why it's failed but it's also ripe for a remake it, we, it's clear that it was it did make money because I know that the rentals as well for this film yep. were off the fucking charts. It yep. made something like seventy million in rentals. It made money. And it it's was a also, brand that's it will sell. Yeah. Get it back out there. And it was also when Blu-ray came out, it was one of Fox's first five releases. Definitely. As well. So that's definitely saying something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't have loads of good bedfellows. I mean, one of those was Fantastic Four, but no. Um, <laughs> Oh, there's one more thing I just want to add. There's something I forgot to mention that I found hilarious at the start of the film in that whole opening tank action sequence that we kind of briefly skimmed over. It's got that Austin Powers moment of the uh, policeman going, No! Stop! (laughs) And the tank just keeps on going, Halt in the name of the law! Everybody else runs away and he just just stands there. And then he runs him over. It's just brilliant. I just thought that was worth a mention. It is. No, definitely. It's a true Austin Powers moment. (laughs) And finally, is LXG one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it remain simply best forgotten? I'm going to say best forgotten. Check out what Captain Nemo's ship looks like, maybe in some photos, or if you want to look at some of the clips on YouTube, if there are any. Check out Jason Fleming as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But apart from that, just leave it alone. Yeah. And uh, wait for the remake. That's it, yeah. yeah. There are fun moments. <laughs> or read the comic. Yeah, exactly. Anything else, but just, yeah, just check those elements out, uh, wait for the remake and read the comic. I agree. There's really. fu- it's fun in fits and starts. There are a couple of fun moments. There's a twist in it that's half decent, mm. but... By and large, the film is quite dreadful considering how strong the uh, the premise is. So, yeah, this can be entirely skipped. But definitely keep an eye on the brand because this is a franchise that might be coming back. Yeah, it's got a lot um, of legs. It, it certainly has. And I applaud them for fucking it up that much. <laughs> that takes effort. Yeah. That's a fuck up that really takes work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom Rothman really knows how to put the work in yeah, when yeah. it comes to fucking up. <laughs> And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. 
Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week as we're trolling our memory banks for Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. But until then, it's bye from myself and so long from Andy. 50 no's and a yes means yes. <laughs> Stop struggling, pussy. <laughs> oh, that stopped struggling really. Ma- uh, uh, it made me cringe. <laughs> Thanks for listening.